Yeah. <laughs> Way too much coffee this morning. All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our, uh, our next topic for uh, this season. Father, thank you for uh, your love. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for your son. And I thank you for these men. And I just pray, Father, today as, as we dig into this topic, this doctrine, that it would um, not only make sense, but it would make a change in the way we view our relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help me to be clear and that uh, your Holy Spirit would take the passages we look at and help them to come alive for every one of us in this room, Father. This is, this is one of those doctrines that's been way overlooked and yet so important to how we live our lives as Christians. So guide us, direct us, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to dig into um, a, a difficult doctrine this morning. And you may be thinking, they've all been difficult. Um, I've got, it's been really fun to get emails from guys, and uh, uh, I've gotten emails from wives of guys who are also listening to this, and um, especially some of the articles that I've asked you to read um, have, have been challenging and um, made you think that's the purpose, and I've gotten emails from different people saying, okay, so what, what's the conclusion? Um, I don't necessarily have a conclusion as much as I just want you to read and draw your own conclusions. You know, get into the Word and see what God's trying to teach you. And this particular one this morning is, uh, it's going to sound familiar to you. It's union with Christ, and it sounds like something you've heard all your life if you're a believer, but it's really something new that's extremely old. And what, what I mean by that is, it's uh, been overlooked, I think, for many, many years, many generations by Christians, but it goes back, of course, it goes back to the Bible, but it goes back to the Reformation. It was before the Reformation, and it was around long after the Reformation, but I would say within the last hundred years, it's been ignored, it's been overlooked, and so I think it's going to be interesting for us to dig into this and see what this really means, this idea of union with Christ. You know, I grew up with um, terminology that communicated this, but in, in kind of an impartial way. So, um, you know, you accept Christ into your life. Uh, Jesus lives in your heart. You know, I remember as a kid hearing that kind of terminology in Sunday school, and um, I have Jesus in my life. And, and so we hear those kinds of terms, but I don't think we fully grasp what that really means, the significance of that. So that's really what this is going to be about this morning. And I want to read this passage to you. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Colossians chapter 1. And it's, of course, the words of Paul. And he says, um, and this is actually part of our church's mission statement, the final two verses of this chapter. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And this is, this is key, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. And then these last two verses are our mission statement as a church. Him, Christ, we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that may we, we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. But the key is this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when we talk about union with Christ, that's what we're talking about. It's Christ in you. And it really has to do with your identity, who you are. And I think to a certain degree, we struggle with identity. Um, and, and so we're always looking for what's my identity? Who am I? And so these are some of the things we wrestle with. Is it in my career? For many of us, our identity is our career. It's what I do. If you meet someone, and typically in a Fort Worth setting or really any setting, and you go meet someone, the first thing you ask them is what? What do you do? Even before you ask their name. You know, what, what do you do? And that kind of sets the bar of, oh, you're a lawyer, and you walk off and go talk to someone else, um, uh, unless you happen to be a lawyer. Uh, but career is important. How about marriage? I'm married. I'm not married. You know, my identity is in my marriage. Uh, I have um, four daughters, two are married, two are not. And one of the ones that's not married is frustrated that she's not married. And she's afraid she's going to be the last of the four to get married. And her identity, to a degree, is found in the fact that she's not married. So we can find our identity in marriage, in having children. You know, how many children do you have? I have two, I have six, I have eight. You must be Catholic. You must be, you know, I've, we heard that. Um, no, we just liked making children. Um, <laughs> At least I did. It's your portfolio. How much money do you have? How many investments do you have? That becomes your identity, your possessions. All of these things, and we could make the list as long as our arm, but where do you find your identity? And when those things are taken away from you, do you lose your identity? Who am I? Uh, I know many women who are stay-at-home moms are just working moms who, when their kids grow up, they lose part of their identity. Because that's what they spent so many years doing is being a mom. And now it's like, well, now what do I do? So this idea of identity is huge. And sometimes we can say if we're holy and spiritual, it's my salvation. My identity is in my salvation. And that's where we'll say things like, well, I'm a Christian. If somebody says, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a Christian. Um, I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a believer. I'm a son of God. These become our kind of identity statements. I'm a joint heir with Christ. And, and the more you know scripture, the more you can make this list as long as you want. I'm a saint. I'm a called one. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. This is my identity. But here's a question. Why? Why is any of this true? Now, if you say, I'm a lawyer, we know why you say you're a lawyer, because you're a lawyer. You went to law school. You got a degree. You did all the things necessary to become a lawyer. But why are these things true? Why are you a Christian? Why do you happen to be a believer? What, what makes you a joint heir with Christ? And this is where union with Christ comes in for us guys. Union with Christ. What does that really mean to be united with Christ? Now, this is a long quote from Martin Luther, but I think it's important for us to read it. He says, Christ's birth, and he's going to compare your new birth in Christ with your birth in Adam. Okay, this is important. Christ's birth cannot be distributed in a bodily way, nor would that help. Therefore, it's distributed spiritually through the word to everyone, as the angel says that it is given to all who firmly believe, so that no harm will come to them because of their impure birth. 
That's the way and manner to become pure from our miserable birth from Adam. For this purpose, Christ wanted to be born that through him we might be born into a different way. This takes place through faith. So he's talking about new birth in Christ, the same conversation he had with Nicodemus. And, and it confused Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Well, how do I go back into my mother's womb? Well, he wasn't talking about physical birth. He's talking about spiritual birth. But he juxtaposes it with our birth into Adam. Remember we, when we talked about depravity, we have inherited from Adam what? Depravity, total depravity, total inability. We are sinners by nature, sinners by birth. And yet through new birth, we are rescued from that miserable birth from Adam. Why? Because of our relationship with Christ, our union with Christ. John Calvin puts it this way, and he, of all the reformers, wrote more about union with Christ than anybody else. And he says this in his Institutes, therefore, that joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union, just like we read in Colossians, it's a mystery, it's hard to explain, that mystical union are accorded by us the highest degree of importance so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us sharers with him in the gifts with which he has been endowed. We are sharers with Christ. We are united with Christ. And, and again, I think this is something we overlook. And what Christ has become to many of us is a historical figure who lived 2,000 plus years ago, who walked around Galilee and Nazareth and Jerusalem, who died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, rose again, ascended back up into heaven, and that's where he is. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, we're told in Scripture. And that's the way we view him. He's distant. He's just like God. He's somewhere out there. But then we'll say, I have Jesus in my heart. Well, which is it? Is he up there or is he in here? What, what, what's going on? What is this union you have? Is he just a historical figure who did something for you, or is he resonant within you and doing things through you? Which is it? And depending on how you view that, it's going to change the way you see your life as a Christian. And I think a lot of us in the room have struggled over the years with, Jesus did something for me, now I have to do everything for myself. He saved me but I got to sanctify myself. I got to do all the work. And union with Christ is going to throw a wrench into that mindset. That's not how it works. He goes on and says, Calvin says, we do not therefore contemplate him outside ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us, but because we put on Christ and are engrafted into his body. So again, this is, this is um, 16th century speech that's very hard for us to grasp, and it's a doctrine that's really hard to get your head around. But we are engrafted into his body, in short, because he deigns to make us one with him. For this reason, we glory that we have fellowship of righteousness with him. So one of the things when we talked about justification several weeks ago is, is this idea that we have been imputed the righteousness of Christ. That's why we can stand as right before God. One of the things we have to watch out is that we get this idea that it's like we get this righteousness that kind of covers us up, and it's an outward thing, but it's not real. And, and, 
what the reformers want you to understand is that you are united with Christ in his righteousness. It's not just a covering. It's not like putting on a bathrobe. It's, it's the essence of who Christ is, and you are in Christ. So as you stand before God, you are righteous in God's eyes. It's not what the Catholics called a legal fiction. It's not impossible. It's not fake. It's not, you know, it's not like Jesus trying to fake God out. Well, here's Ken. I've covered him with my righteousness. He's really not righteous, but I've covered him, so let him in. That's not the picture. It's one of being united with Christ. We are engrafted with him. And that is really significant for us to understand that it's not, okay, I got in, I have access, but now I got to really work my tail off to truly become righteous. That falls back into the trap of what was being taught during Luther's day that you're the one that has to make yourself righteous. You are all, you're already righteous in the eyes of God because you are in Christ. And that's really significant. I love this from Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So it's not you doing the living, it's Christ doing the living through you. You're grafted into him. You know, it's interesting as, as the uh, writers of the New Testament struggled with this concept of being in Christ and with Christ and Christ in you and you in Christ, they, the best they could do is come up with metaphors because it's so hard to understand. So they, they came up, Jesus talked about the vine and the branches, abide in me and I abide in you. Um, Paul talked about marriage, that it's like a marriage. When a husband and wife come together, they become one flesh. They become united. They share everything in common. Uh, it's the building of a temple. It's the bricks and the, the mortar that come together to build the temple, that we're all united. We're one. And so they used all these different metaphors because this stuff is hard to get your head around. But I think what we do is when things are difficult in Scripture, Rather than dig into them and try to comprehend them, we just avoid them. We just, okay, I'm in Christ, great, and we move on. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But what the reformers would have you do, what Christ would have you do, what I want to do is dig into this. Um, just yesterday, I read a book just that thick on union with Christ because I so wanted to get better um, a better understanding of what it really means. And I just kept reading and reading and reading it, because I want to know these things and I want to wrestle with them and they're difficult and they're hard, but they're key to us becoming who we're meant to become. Otherwise, we fall back into this trap of you trying to be what you think you need to be. It's all about you. So Paul tells the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. How many times have you gotten up in the morning, looked in the mirror and goes, crap, it's the same old guy. It's him again. And I'm going to spend the rest of the day trying to deal with him and everything that he does wrong. And I'll never get this done. And you don't see yourself as what? In Christ, a new creation. The oldest passed, the new has come. And yes, guys, we have, a, we have a sin nature and we do tend to sin and we have those old propensities. But the problem is we live as if that's the reality. The reality is what? That I am in Christ. I am engrafted with Christ. And the scriptures are pretty clear that we are as good as sitting next to him in heaven. 
Now, I know that's really hard for us to get our head and hearts around because it sounds metaphysical, it sounds mystical, it sounds weird. It's, it's like, but I'm here and he's there. No, he, he's here. And I've been racking my brain trying to figure out a way to illustrate this idea to you guys. And so as all metaphors, they're going to break down. But if this glove represents you, okay, it's black, it's old, um, it's sweaty, that's your sin. It has no life in and of itself. It's kind of useless. Well, when we talk about justification, the idea is that we get placed into Christ and then we're seen by God as justified. We are whole. We're perfect. We're in this vessel of Christ's righteousness, sinlessness, perfection. And that's the way we, we tend to see ourselves. But then we always keep looking back in going, yeah, but it's still the same glove. It's, it still stinks. It's still sweaty. It's still dirty. It's still, that's me. Yeah, that's Christ. This is me. But what we fail to understand is this, this idea of union with Christ is, is illustrated in two different ways. And we're going to look at it in a second. It's Christ in you and you in Christ. And again, that's hard to understand, but here's the best way I, I can explain it. Not only do you get placed in Christ, but Christ gets placed in you. And now there's a power within you that ac accomplishes things you never could have done before. Yes, you still have sin. Yes, you still have the stink of sinfulness in you, but you have Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit now motivating you and guiding you so that you can do things you couldn't do before. See, it teaches both. And sometimes we just forget that we have this power available to us and we live as if, okay, I'm in Christ. He's up there. I'm covered in his righteousness. I know I'm going to be in heaven someday, but I got to do everything myself now. And that's why we're so tired. That's why we're so worn out because we don't understand union with Christ. See, back in Luther's day, back in Calvin's day, both Catholics and Reformers believed in union with Christ. Catholic theology teaches union with Christ. The problem is there were differences, as we've seen over and over again as we've gone through this series on the Reformers, they had differences, how they viewed union with Christ. And here's, here's what began to develop and kind of expand as they got into this. The difference between communion with Christ and union with Christ. We, we long to have communion with Christ. We desire communion with Christ. I, I want to I be with Christ. I want to feel Christ. I want to hear him speak to me. I, I want to walk with Christ. I want to do things with Christ. I want to be empowered by Christ. But the problem the Catholics had, and a lot of this came from a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a Roman Catholic. He was a theologian. And he had an interesting take on this idea of union. And he took the Song of Solomon... You ever read the Song of Solomon? It's pretty much all about sex. Um, and it's, it's all about marriage. And it's got some pretty interesting um, scriptures in it. And he believed that that was a picture of the believer's union with Christ, the intimacy. The, um, he would take the sexual aspects and turn it into your loving relationship with Christ. It was an interesting way to interpret Song of Solomon. And he became an influencer on not only Roman Catholics, but the Reformers. Both Calvin and Luther quoted him extensively. 
And he longed for union with Christ, but his problem was he saw it as a fluid state. It was coming and going. It ebbed and it flowed. And the only way you could achieve union with Christ was through many prayers and tears, through the sacraments, through keeping the laws of the Old Testament, and also from keeping the decretals of the church. It was always effort, always trying to do more and more. Otherwise, you lost your union with Christ. The reformers would go, no, that's not true. You're talking about two different things. Communion with Christ fluctuates. It does ebb and flow. If I walk out of here today and, you know, we've had a great time together and we've studied the word of God together and we've communed together, we've communed with Christ, we've been in the word, and then I walk out of here and I, and I go to a triple X porn site at home, I will fall out of communion with Christ like that. But I'm still in union with Christ. And see, the Catholics believe that you were always in and out of your union with Christ. The reformers would say, no, the Bible teaches that I am always in union with Christ. I am always in Christ. He is always in me. But communion's a different thing. My feelings for Christ ebb and flow, just like yours do. There are days you want to spend time with him. There are days you feel him close. There are days you feel like he's nowhere to be found, that your prayers are going unanswered. That's communion. It happens. There are days I feel really close to my wife. There are days I would rather not be around her. Isn't that true of all of us? And I'm sure her feelings for me are exactly the same sometimes. Communion and union are two different things. I may feel like I don't want to be with my wife, but that does not make me no longer married to my wife. We are still one in God's eyes. We are still united. And the same thing is true with Christ. Union with Christ is based on him, not you. And anytime you get it into your head, oh gosh, man, I really screwed up today. And, and I've, I've just broken that union with Christ. That is not biblical. You've just harmed your communion with Christ, but you are still in Christ and he is still in you. And that never changes. And that's why this is so important. See, there's two ways to look at this. And hopefully my illustration helps. There's in Christ, he is, we are in him and he is in us. And the scriptures are really clear about this. We are in Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation. And we got to get that through our heads. It's not because you live a non-condemnable life. Because you do things every day that are condemnable. It's because you're in Christ. You're no longer under condemnation because you are in Christ. The focus is Christ. How about 1 Corinthians 1.30? Because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And many of the uh, reformers would go on to say that this doctrine of union with Christ is central to understanding every other doctrine of salvation. If you don't understand that you are in Christ and he is in you and that it's permanent and it's based on him and not you, you'll never fully understand sanctification, for instance. You'll always think that it's your job. I got to be more holy. I got to be this. I got to be that. I got to work harder. I got to do more. And suddenly you've fallen back into what? Faith plus works. Faith plus your effort. And it's because you don't understand union with Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and he's not saying maybe you are, maybe you're not. He's basically saying, hey, if you're in Christ, you're a believer. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is a done deal. If you're in Christ and he is in you, you are what? A new creation. And I don't care how many times you look in the mirror and you see the same old guy. Here's what I can tell you. Every day you look in the mirror, you're going to see the same old guy getting older. It's still struggling with some of the same old sins, but you are in God's eyes, a new creation. And we got to believe that. And we got to start living like that and quit looking at ourselves and finding our identity in the wrong things. Your identity and my identity is based on what I am in Christ and Christ is in me. That's who you are. So, We are in Christ, but Christ is in us. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How could Paul say that? Because he believed it, that Christ lives in me. And the only way I can live this life is because I am united to Christ. And I can accomplish things. It's like that glove. I put my hand in it, and suddenly that lifeless glove can do things it never could have done before. That's the beauty of union with Christ is that I not only get his righteousness, I get his power. I get his ability. I get his sinless capability to do things differently. And without him, I don't have that. Union with Christ is central to you living out your relationship with Christ. He goes on in Colossians, to them God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. We just read this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does that mean? Christ in you is the hope of you getting there. You will not get there any other way except for Christ in you because Christ in you is as central to you being in Christ. And I know you're going, oh my gosh, I need three more cups of coffee. But see, this is so critical. And part of the reason we don't want to talk about it is because it's so hard to understand. And so we'd rather just talk about easier things. But for the reformers, guys, this was like manna from heaven. This was like encouragement that for, for men who had grown up within the Catholic faith and who were always working to make themselves right with God to suddenly be told, no, you are in Christ and he is in you and you are already right with God. And you now have the power of God to do things you never could have done before. It was huge. And it needs to be huge today. Romans 8.10, Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. You catch that? The last part's talking about your justification. You've been made right with God, but you've also been given the spirit That's how Christ dwells in you. It is the spirit of Christ living within you and the spirit gives you life because you have already been justified. You're already right with God and now you have this power to do things you never could have done before. Union with Christ. Identity with Christ. You know, we we looked earlier at this, this idea of Luther that you have been saved from this miserable birth from Adam. We were born in sin. We've inherited the sin of Adam, original sin. And then we do a great job of adding our own sin on top of it. And he says, but you've been saved from that. See, in Adam, when we're born in Adam, we possess all that he possessed. 
What did he possess? Well, let's look at it. Original sin, judgment, condemnation, fear, alienation from God, and death. And that's just a short list. This is what we got from Adam. Thank you, Adam. Great. Love it. And if you don't understand that, that's why we did depravity three weeks ago. If you don't understand that, you'll never understand what you get in Christ. Because in Christ, it's a different picture. In Christ, we possess all that he has. And this, this ought to blow your mind. You possess all that Christ has, his righteousness. Right? We've been placed in Christ. We're seen as righteous. We possess his holiness. Well, I don't think I got enough of that. Well, no, you, you got all you need. It's just that you're not living according to it. You're not allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to really live in you. That's why we're told to submit to the Spirit and to listen to the Spirit and to obey the Spirit and not to obey our flesh. We've received eternal life already. It doesn't begin when you die. It began when you accepted Christ. Eternal life is already yours. You're living your eternal life right now. We have fellowship with God. You can go talk to God right now. And not only that, he sits at the right hand of God and he intercedes for you. You have sonship. You are a son of God. You're not a son of, a, of the other. You're a son of God. Think about that. That's what you get from Christ. Not condemnation, not death. Not all those things we got from Adam, those have been wiped out, and we get all of these things, including the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is God in you, Christ in you, the power of God in you, the hope of glory. See, this is the difference between what we got from Adam and what we got in Christ. We have that in us. And John Calvin says, his task Jesus' task was to restore us to God's grace as to make of the children of men, children of God, of the heirs of Gehenna, hell, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this had not the selfsame son of God become the son of man? And had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his to us and to make what was, what was his nature by nature, ours by grace. Again, hard to understand, deep stuff, difficult language. What's he saying? You got all that was Christ, and he took all that was yours. Go back and look at that list of in Adam. That's what you gave to Christ when he died on the cross. He took all that on him, and he gave you all that he has, his righteousness, his holiness, his relationship with the Father, sonship, adoption, everything that we get, sanctification, we get because of our union with Christ. That's why he came. And, and the, what we got to get through our heads is that it is a reality. Is it difficult to understand? Yes. But that doesn't make it not real. You ever tried to explain the Trinity to anybody? There's no way to explain the Trinity. But that doesn't make it not real. It, it's a reality. It's a mystery, but it's still a reality. And it's ours by grace. God gave it to us through his son. We didn't get just salvation from Christ. And sometimes that's all we think Jesus did. He died on the cross, I got saved. Well, yeah, but there's a lot more to that. We got Christ himself. And this is what I don't think we understand. We think of salvation as some kind of a commodity 
that he, he gave us. He gave us salvation. No, we got Christ. Christ is our salvation. It's our relationship with him, our place in him and him in us that is our salvation. It's Christ. And I think what union with Christ really teaches is it's all about Christ. And it's not about you. And for some of us, that's a really sad thought. I want it to be about me. It's always been about me. No, it's, it's about Christ. It's about what he did and what he's doing. He's not the means to some other reward. In other words, Jesus Christ is not your ticket to heaven. He is the reward. Your relationship with him is the reward. You're in him, he's in you. That's the reward. That's heaven already. Remember what Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall? Perfect communion with God. Not only perfect communion, but union. They walked with him. They talked with him. They could go to him at any time. They heard from him directly. They had a relationship with him, and then it all fell. It all went south, and they got kicked out of the garden. Not only was communion broken, but union was broken. Jesus Christ came to reestablish that. And heaven is really the garden reconfigured to where now man has, what, union with God and his son. But it starts at salvation. I don't have to wait till I get to heaven. I'm already in heaven because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. I already have a relationship with God. I can talk to God. I can walk with God. I can hear from God. I can read the word of God. And I can understand it because I have the spirit of God within me. It's all because of the union with Christ. He is the reward. I love this from Michael Rees and Tim Chester. We do not, as Calvin put it, seek in Christ something else than Christ himself. The great reward of union with Christ is Christ. Knowing and enjoying him is the eternal life for which we have been saved. And see, I was raised on a doctrine of you have been saved so that you can someday get to heaven. Now, is heaven a great place? From everything I can tell, yes. But I'm not in heaven. Someday I'm going to be there, but my heaven has already begun. My relationship with Christ is already real. And sometimes we live as if he's there, we're here and we got to work our tail off to get there because that's the real reward. No, the reward has already been received. We have Christ. We have been given Christ. And everything that he is, his power, his essence, his righteousness, his holiness, we have that available to us. So here's the so what. Why is any of this important? And I know you're already thinking that. Why are we even doing this study? It should affect you dramatically. But here's what it's going to take. You're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to dwell on it. You're going to, and, and I've been really in the car. I've just been, okay, Lord, what does this mean? That's why, you know, trying to come up with an illustration. How do I think about this? How do I live this out? What does it look like for me? See, I've got to get past this idea that I have a saved status. It's like I got stamped, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval. I'm coming down the assembly line, bam, you're saved. Here comes another, bam, saved. Here comes one, knock it off. Marred, you're not saved. I have a saved status. That is not the way we need to look at this. Because if you have that attitude, here's the way you live life. You're left to live the holy life on your own. You got the stamp. You're saved. You're going to get to heaven, but you got to get better before you get there. And we read passages that say, be holy as God is holy. We think, oh gosh, I got so much work to do. No, 
You're in Christ. Christ is in you. He's the one who makes you holy, not you. Now, again, guys, we have things we have to do. We have work we have to accomplish. We do need to read the Bible. We do need to pray. But those are means to an end. They're not the end. It's not you making yourself holy. It's you allowing Christ in you to shine through you. It's realizing that it's all about him. It's not about you. They go on in their book, Michael Reeves and Tim Chester, it's good for us to ponder our union with Christ regularly and often, for all too easily I forget that Christ has become my identity, and I think I am what I do. So if you come to Bible study and you walk out, you feel good that I went to Bible study. I, I, I get an A. I went to Bible study. If you have a good quiet time this, this morning or tomorrow morning, I get an A because I had a good quiet time. If you pray, I get an A because I had a good quiet time. And suddenly you become what you do and you check off your list and you think, okay, I did this, I did this. Oh, I didn't do that. I'm not good. And your, your identity goes like this. I'm in Christ. I'm not in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm not in Christ. No, you are in Christ. He is your identity. And if anything goes wrong in your life, and, and I know this is true because it's true of me, if anything goes wrong in your life, what's your immediate thought? Where have I screwed up? What did I do wrong? Why is he punishing me? I've, 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 I've sinned somehow. I've hurt myself with God. I'm no longer in union with Christ or God. That is not true. That is not biblical. So this idea of identity is huge, and we suffer from an identity crisis we're, we are what we own. We are what we drive. We are what we know, who we know, where we live, how we look, what we wear, what we do, how we're perceived, what others think of us, how we feel about us. This is how we think about ourselves, guys. And you all do it. You know, they say that right now among young people, the uh, suicide rate is skyrocketing and it's because of social media. And, and they post something and they don't get any likes and they get depressed. Nobody likes me. They have more friends than I have. You guys have done it. You, you see friends of yours who post things and it's their vacation. And they're in Maui or they're, you know, you see them on some beach. And not only are they in a great place that you don't get to go to, they have better bodies than you do. You know, because they're not afraid to wear a swimsuit. You know, and you think, golly. And you get depressed. And it becomes your identity. See, this, this, we have an identity crisis. Here we are, we're in Christ, he's in us, and we're struggling with identity. Who are we? But what does Paul say? My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now we read that and we think, well, that's Paul. Paul was weird. Paul was over the top. Paul was super spiritual. Paul was this, Paul was that. No, this is to be true of every one of us. My old self has been crucified. My identity is not in what you think about me. It's what God says about me. You're mine. You're my son. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. You, you, are, you are like my son already in spite of what? In spite of my sin nature. I don't have to dwell on my old self. That doesn't mean I shouldn't try to change my old self with the help of the Holy Spirit, but that is not my identity. I am no longer looked at by God. And he goes, man, Ken, do you remember all the things you did when you were in college? Do you remember all the drugs you did and all the drugs you sold and all this and all that? Do you remember that? He doesn't look at me that way. I do. 
I can look back and go, yeah, man, I was a screwball. How could he ever forgive? It's forgiven because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Michael Horton says this, it's important to realize that Christ does not come to improve the old self, to guide and redirect it to a better life. He comes to kill us. I love that. In order to raise us to newness of life, he is not the friend of the old self, only too happy to be of service. He is its mortal enemy bent on replacing it with a new self. See, some of us are in the habit of trying to fix the old self. We just, if I could just get a little, better, better, little bit better version of the old self, I'd be okay. No, your old self is dead, according to God. It's an enemy of God. He wants to put it to death. And sometimes we want to hold on to it like a toy, like a stuffed animal that we had when we were a kid. I kind of like that old self. No, we're to die to it because that's not my identity. That's not who I am. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. We must understand, John Calvin says, that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Now, he's not saying you can lose your salvation. He's saying that if you do have Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, he is in you, you are in him, and you possess everything that is his. You want to be holy? You can be because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. You want to live righteously? You can because Christ is in you and you are in Christ. See, this is central to what we believe as Christians, but we don't think about it. So here's what the Bible describes you and I. We are fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. We are adopted as sons through Christ, Ephesians 1, 5. We are victorious because of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. We are indwelt by the spirit of Christ, John 14, 17. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. And we are no longer condemned thanks to Christ, Romans 8, 1. All of these things are true of you. And you may wake up tomorrow and go, I don't believe any of them. Doesn't matter. They're true of you because you don't make them happen. Christ does. This isn't up to you. This is up to him. And here's the key one. You're eternally secure in Christ. John 10 verses 28 through 29. Your salvation is secure, not based on how well you live today, how, how well you end up. You know, it's interesting. I've had several guys ask me, yeah, but what about Luther's later days of life? where he said some really disparaging things about Jews, and we'll talk about it in more detail later. Luther didn't end well. Neither did King David, neither did Solomon. But that doesn't mean they weren't used of God. I, I, I hate to say it, but some of you won't end well. You, you may not end your life well. That doesn't mean you're not in Christ. That doesn't mean you're not secure because your identity is not based on how you end. It's based on if you're in Christ. Now, the goal is you end well. That's why Paul said, I run the race to win. I fight, but not like boxing the air. I want, to, I want to get the reward. I want to stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But the well done, good and faithful servant is going to become yours because Christ is in you, not because you worked hard. It's because you understood identity with Christ. We tend to view Jesus as ascended and inaccessible. He's sitting at the Father's side. But what did he tell the disciples? And this is pretty critical. No, 
I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you will also live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. How is that going to happen? The Holy Spirit. He sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. That's why he could tell them in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. See, that's the key. That's what we got to get through our head. You can't live the Christian life unless you embrace union with Christ. You're not just saved and someday going to heaven. You are redeemed and you are a child of God, a son of God, an heir with Christ. It, it's all about dependency. It's not about you losing your salvation. It's total reliance on Christ. And that's why I think we need to think about union with Christ every day of our lives because every day of my life, I am dependent upon him for everything. Everything. See, Paul tells the Ephesians, there was a day when you were living apart from Christ, but now you are united, united with Christ. Something's happened. Something's changed. This is all different. We are in Christ. So what are the benefits? Here's just a few. Salvation, righteousness, justification, adoption, forgiveness, wisdom, sanctification, perseverance. How am I ever going to live this life for however long he leaves, leaves, leaves me on this planet? It's the perseverance comes from Christ. It doesn't come from you. All of this comes from your union with Christ. For he, God, raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. You are as good as there. You're as good as there. It's secure. Paul tells the Ephesians, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with many spiritual, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united to Christ. Everything that is a blessing there, everything that Christ is blessed with there, you are blessed with here. You don't have to get there to get it. But see, we think, I won't really get it until I get there. No. You'll get a glorified body, but you have Christ now. You have everything that Christ is now in you and ministering to you. So I'll end with this. John Calvin in his institute says, man is destitute, devoid of all good things. If he seeks resources to succor him in his need, he must go outside of himself and get them elsewhere, which we're great at doing. For in Christ, he offers us all happiness in place of our misery, all wealth in place of our neediness. In him, he opens to us the heavenly treasures that are our whole faith may contemplate his beloved son. Our whole expectations depend on him and our whole hope cleaves and rests in him. We have that right now. Everything we need, we have right now. I don't need anything else. I am in him and he is in me. It's a, is this stuff hard? Yes. But is it critical? Yes. And we got to wrestle with it. We got to talk about it. We got to think about it. So here's, here's your discussion questions. I want you to take a few minutes to think about the quote from John Calvin. Our whole expectations depend on him and our whole hope cleaves and rests in him. Just talk about that. You may sit there and go, I don't have a clue what that means. That's okay. Probably three or four other guys at the table don't know what it means either. But think about it. Wrestle with it. How about the second one? In what ways do our lives fail to show our dependence upon Christ and cause us to doubt his presence within us? How does that happen every day? And it's going to happen when you walk out of the doors this morning. 
And then finally, what do Paul's words, Christ in you, the hope of glory, mean to you? Do they mean anything to you? Are they hopeful? Are they inspiring? Are they encouraging? See, this thing, union with Christ, the more I've studied it, the hungrier I am for it. Because it, it's everything. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. I've been a believer since I was seven years old. But this doctrine is really new to me. And I want it to become central to me because it's key to me living the life I've been called to live. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this doctrine. Not that it's a doctrine, but it's a reality that you are in me and I am in you and I am united to you in every imaginable way. And Father, it's because of that that I can live the life you've called me to live. I can be holy. I can live righteously. I can do good deeds created before the foundation of the world for me to do because of Christ. And Father, I thank you for that. May we live like that. May we think about this. And I pray that as the guys talk around the tables, may they be encouraged by one another with a desire to live as men whose identity is found in Christ and the Christ who is in them. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, your turn.